Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, January 18th, 2023. I am John Budhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, Jerusalem Post and Jewish News Service columnist, uh, Israeli journalist of 40 years plus standing, and my sister, Ruthie Bloom. Hi, Ruthie. Hi, John. So, Ruthie, we have asked you to join us today because we need some enlightenment and some um, realism regarding the Constitution makeup and policies of the new government in Israel. The new issue of Commentary Magazine uh, out, uh, which is being mailed, I don't know, today maybe, or at some point in the next couple of days, and is available online at commentary.org, has two pieces about the new Israeli government, one by our Jewish commentary columnist, Mir Soloveitchik, which is about the 13-minute stroll around the Temple Mount taken by new Israeli minister, um, is it Itamar Ben-Gavir? Yes. What is his? Itamar, Itamar Ben-Gavir. Yes. Um, in uh and and the the a ruinous and preposterous uh 55 year policy now uh that Jews should not be allowed to pray at the Temple Mount agreed to at in the wake of the six day war by the single most um arrogant and uh hostile to religion uh leading Jew of the first generation of Jewish leaders of Israel. Moshe Dayan and how this decision has had these bizarre ancillary consequences. That's Sully's piece about the walk on the Temple Mount. And Elliot Abrams, uh, coincidentally, entirely coincidentally, Ruthie's and my brother-in-law, the chairman of the Tikva Fund, former U.S. government official, has a big piece about the Israeli government that I commend to all of you about the hysterical reaction to the to the new Israeli government. Ruthie, uh, as a one of the few uh, Anglophone journalists in Israel, let's say, uh, who has not uh, taken to your fainting couch <laughs> or ma- marched around Tel Aviv with signs talking about how evil this government is, uh, basically, common sense would say to you, would say to one, there's an election. It's the fifth election in two years or something like that, or three years. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, there is a strongish government that has been put in place by this election. 64 seats, which is uh, three more than you need to have a majority in the government. Hasn't been one of those for since 2014 or something like that, 2015, 2014. Mm-hmm. And so this is obviously a consent. This is a government that the Israeli people want, that they have assembled, that has been assembled with an understanding when you voted for it, that this was what you were going to get or some version of this democratic country, very fractious democracy, very hard to come to consensus on things. Government is formed. And the general view of enlightened opinion is that it is a monstrosity on a par with the uh, Iranian malocracy signs in Tel Aviv over the weekend at the big demonstration there. Iran is here conveniently written in English so that it could get on 
American television. Anyway, um, and we could talk about the rabbis here at home who are doing who are who are having a cow and everybody else was having a cow. So tell us why people, first of all, if you can characterize it with some dispassion, why is everybody so hysterical? Okay, I'm not sure I can characterize it with dispassion, but I'll make an effort. Um, Everybody is hysterical. It's not everybody who's hysterical. It's the left. It's most of the uh, pundits in, in the media. There are conservative pundits, but you haven't heard of them. And um, their voices are not um, magnified, let's put it that way. It is no accident that there was a majority of, that this government was elected by a majority because most of the country is conservative. Let's start with that. Um, The notion that somehow this wasn't really a majority um, because this government only won by a few votes is also not true because that is taking into account the anti-Zionist Arab vote. Um, So, and that vote doesn't vote for any Zionist government with the exception of one Arab party called Ra'am, headed by um, Mansour Abbas. Um, the The last government, he was included in the coalition of the last government and it was unprecedented because his party is associated with the Muslim Brotherhood. And he came along and said, you know what? We've been too intransigent all these years. We need to be, we need to have a seat at the table to help our community. And the reason this was unprecedented is that the other Arab uh, Knesset members have been more concerned about Palestinian statehood and destroying the state of Israel than about taking care of their constituents. So Mansour Abbas was a member of the coalition and that enabled him to get a massive amount of money for his community which is all fine and good, except that he, and he's, by the way, he's still in the Knesset, but not in the government, of course. Now, when he uh, emerged on the scene as somebody who had reformed, so to speak, um, even I said, you gotta give him a chance because he made a speech, not only in, uh, he made a speech in Hebrew, and it was translated into English in which he said, you know, we need a seat at the table and is, you know, we've changed, Israel is here to stay. And then at some point he even said something similar in Arabic, which was even more significant. Um, ben Gvir, Itamar Ben Gvir, whom you mentioned, as a young man was an activist and a, and a mayor Kahana supporter the so-called extremist rabbi. Okay, you know, who, can you hold 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 yeah. on a second? Okay, because yes, sure. there are a lot of threads here. So what okay. we we were talking about the current government in right. which in which Mansour Abbas is not a participant. The previous right. government, which was in place for 14 months, I can't even remember how long. Well, yes, it was yes, something like that. Okay, and not so that government the same prime minister. <laughs> yeah, so that <laughs> government had two different prime ministers, uh, Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid. Right, and they traded off, and that government, which was j- jerry rigged and was basically made possible by the inclusion of Mansour Abbas's one seat, no, uh, the four Bal- seats. 
four well, seats. You have me. to have a minimum right. of four seats to even get four in. Seats. Right. Okay. So he had four seats. Uh, that's the his party. Uh, so they hit 61 and they formed this government. And the entire binding glue of the government, if you took the, I don't know what it is, seven or eight different parties that were in the government, was that they didn't like Benjamin Netanyahu. Some of it they didn't like his policy. Some of it they didn't like that he was under indictment. Some of them that they didn't like that they didn't like his jacket. It doesn't matter. (laughs) It was a non, in some ways it was ideological, but it was also basically a anyone but BB coalition. And it lasted longer than a lot of people thought it would. But when that's your binding glue at some point, you know, it's just not going to hold for the long term because there is no government. There's no governing philosophy. There's no governing principle except keep this guy and the people he might bring in with him out of office. So uh, there was this remarkable fact of the inclusion of an Arab party in this anyone but the government in In the the ruling coalition but it still fell apart of its own internal contradictions there was another election and uh the thing that has driven everybody into transports of hysteria is the inclusion in this government of a combined party the party of itamar Ben Gavir and Betzalel Smotrich. And that party is a very interesting and unusual coalition that is, you think, being misunderstood as some kind of radical religious uh, effort to impose a theocratic, right, fascistic state on Israel, whereas in fact, you think it's far more of a populist, what we would understand as a populist party concerned with quality of life issues for everyday and not very well-to-do Israelis. Do I have that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Okay. But I, the reason I brought up Mansour Abbas in the context of Ben Gvir was not merely to discuss the difference in extremism. It was to say that when Mansour Abbas came out and said, I've changed. Everybody said, great. Everybody in America believed him, praised you know, this, that government for including him. Ben Gvir said, I've changed. And nobody believes him. And you didn't hear that at all. All you hear is that he's an extremist activist. He has come out and said many times, I was young, I was a young activist. I no longer have those opinions. And what they were was uh, the Rabbi Mayor Kahana's view that you have to expel Arabs and Ben Gvir had been arrested in his youth for for vandalism, graffiti, anti-Arab graffiti and for stealing, get this, the logo or whatever you call it on a car, you know, that shows the car model off of uh, the late prime minister, it's Hak Robin's car. He stole the, he ripped it off. Okay. So he came out and said, I'm a changed man and no one was interested. That was my point of bringing up the two. Now, 
Uh, aside from that, it's not just for everyday Israelis and all that, it is true. But the left, the last government um, was really an extreme left-wing government. Even though some of its members were right-wingers who hated Netanyahu and therefore they didn't, that suddenly their politics and their ideology was secondary to their hatred of Benjamin Netanyahu. And, but the illusion, at least they gave the government an illusion of being a centrist government because it was made up of a whole slew of disparate parties from left to right. And Naftali Bennett, when he became prime minister, he had, he had been running on a ticket that Netanyahu is too left-wing. Naftali Bennett, prior to his uh, rise to the premiership, was considered by every left-winger in Israel to be a fascist, religious, right-wing, crazy person, okay? But as soon as he said, I'll join with all the left-wing parties as long as I can be prime minister, even though I only had seven seats, which by the way, as soon as he was elected, turned into six seats. Everybody said, isn't he wonderful? I mean, it was so uh, hilarious to all Israelis to say, to hear far left-wing party members, merits party members, praising Bennett, whom they had practically compared to Hitler about five minutes beforehand, all right? So now, the, pub, the Israeli public is not stupid. And though it was persuaded by, by a lot of, well, the, let's not forget the pandemic. When the pandemic came along, had the pandemic not come along, it's possible that a lot of this, that that government would not have been formed. And why am I saying that? Because it got mixed up with the anti-Netanyahu protests which were called, they were called the crime minister protests because of uh, Netanyahu's indictments. But really in Israel, the, the, um, the left was so against the lockdowns. It was interesting how in America and in Israel, there was an opposite response. In America, be, because Trump had said, had initially poo-pooed, uh, the pandemic and said, I shake everybody's hand or whatever he said at first, initially, Netanyahu had the opposite um, view. Everybody locked down, nobody touch one another, nobody see a family member, wear gloves, wear masks, stay at home. And we even had drones flying over the beaches in Tel Aviv, yelling, everybody go into your house. And we had the police checking if we strayed more than a block from our houses and things like that. The left went crazy. I, about this, by the way, happen to agree with the left on this matter, but the pandemic also screwed up the economy that was doing well, as happened in the United States and everywhere else. So that all, the, the crime minister protests were really, uh, really accelerated by the pandemic. And, um, but, the, but as a result, the government that ended up being formed was a government that all, all, as you said, all its gel was anti-Netanyahu, but it really was ex an extreme left-wing government. And Israeli society began to be, the main point about it was that Israel is a progressive state, like California, 
where now we need to, schools should have uh, parents called parent one and parent two instead of mother and father. It was after school extracurricular programs could have transgender classes, but no, no uh, let's say classes about religion or about your Judaism. It was moving in a very progressive direction, which was kind of ironic since the Arab parties and the Arab party, Mansour Abbas, I mentioned his party. If anybody in Israel hates gays, it's them, okay? And they say so without any hesitation. They say it's an abomination in Islam and that it's a perversion. And so the disingenuous nature of the hysteria today is, did you ever hear that? Did you hear all of these columnists yelling about the last government? How dare they include an Arab who hates gays in the government? No. Okay, is, so. You know, that's why. Okay. That was my point of raising his. Uh... Okay. So 64 seats. One of the reasons that 64 seats were gotten by this coalition that that Netanyahu has now put into power. We should say, by the way, that throughout this entire period, by far the most popular politician in the country is Netanyahu and his party Likud uh, has received a minimum of 29 out of the 120 seats and and sometimes 30, sometimes 31. This government is what? 34? I'm not sure. Something like that. I can't now I can't remember. So in other words, since, it, since November 1st. No other part, no other individual party has gotten more than 20, I think, right. since in, in right. the last decade. So Likud is by far the most popular party. And and even when he could not form a, a standing government, um, of more than 60 seats, he could still assemble 60 seats. The miracle of the last government was that they were able somehow to for, to get 61 in the anti-Netanyahu coalition. Bibi had remained prime minister for two years after the, after the first of these five elections um, because they couldn't form a government, so the existing government simply stayed as the government. But no one could form an anti-BB government until this last go-round because Likud was too popular. Yes, and because, and, because, Likud, yeah. and because this all started, may I say, and because of the defection of two right-wing politicians in particular who didn't care about, suddenly their ideology was secondary. And the main one, the initial one, was Avigdor Lieberman, who is the outgoing, who was just, he just completed his uh, tenure as finance minister. Avigdor Lieberman was also considered a right-wing fascist by all the enlightened people in Israel because his view was you should have death penalty for terrorists, by the way, which Ben Gvir also says. Lieberman, uh, but Lieberman- No, it's important, it's, this is an important point you're making because we actually published a piece in 2010 or something like that by Seth Mandel about Lieberman and Lieberman, the the rhetoric and language that was used by Avigdor Lieberman, who is a who is basically a Russian, a, a Russian nationalist. I, yeah. He he represented the Russian Jewish community, and his politics are very interesting because he's unbelievably hard lined about crime and terrorism and this and that. 
but he doesn't give a fig about religion. And no, he hates it. No, he hates religion. Yeah, it's interesting because he lives on a settlement and he's married to an Orthodox woman. So he, so but he hates the ultra Orthodox. Right. Right. So he's okay. So the point here, the point here is that when it served the interests of conventional Western opinion, Avigdor Lieberman was the monster of of monsters there's always an israeli monster that's right right. and he was the monster of monsters and then because he was so secular uh and because he hated bb so much personally the way almost everybody who ends up being close gets close to the flame and maybe starts thinking about being prime minister himself and then bb does whatever he has to do to cut off his knees so he hates BB and he hates the religion. And so then Lieberman and becomes a somewhat he started off acceptable. this whole cycle of elections. How did he do that? In 2019, ahead of the elections, it was assumed, and he vowed to do so, that he was on the right-wing side of the political pie chart. So every poll ahead of that election showed the pie chart and how they do it is they showed right, left, and then a sliver for the Arab parties. And why, why are the Arab parties always separated in this pie chart? Because they're anti-Zionists who refuse to ever cooperate with any Israeli government. So they're, they're all, they have constituents and they sit in the Knesset, but they are assumed never to join a government because they don't want to, not just because Israelis won't have them. So. Avigdor Lieberman was on the right side of that pie chart. And on election night, when it became clear that the right had won a clear victory with Netanyahu at its head, Lieberman said the day after the elections, uh, no, I changed my mind. I'm not on the right wing. I'm not, I'm not on your side. And that began this whole cycle of elections because it was impossible. Right. That's what he did. Right. Okay. So, okay. so. Let, so we've gotten we've we, we've set the stage on the table here. Bibi Netanyahu has the sixty-four seat government. Why? Remember, he is maybe the best single politician uh, in the West, in the Democratic West. And what did he do that made possible the? What he did was something that the left could have done to strengthen its position, but didn't which is that you need a threshold of a certain number of votes and a certain number of seats in order to get into the government. Two very right-wing parties, the Ben Gavir party and the Smotrich party, had they run separately, would likely have not passed the threshold. No, Smotrich wouldn't have. Ben Gavir was going okay, to. Okay, <laughs> excuse me. Right, okay, so Smotrich wouldn't have, but Ben Gavir would have. And Bibi convinced them to go into alliance as a single party. Uh in order to make sure that Smotrich's people, that their the vote counts. go into the garbage, basically. Yeah, because what happens is if you vote for a party that gets less than 3.25% of the vote, is that it? Something like that. It's Then the vote is wasted. Up to four seats. It's wasted, yeah. The, your vote is literally thrown out. It has no value because you're, the person you voted for doesn't make the Knesset and your vote therefore doesn't count. And your party is out and, and, you, and, the, and your members are not even in the Knesset. Right. So Bibi went to them and said, you know what you guys should do? Go into alliance together. You'll both be ministers and we'll go from there. 
And as a result, this alliance got 14 seats, right? Is that right? Okay. Take the left side of the ledger, labor and merits, labor, the oldest, uh, the oldest political party in Israel, essentially the party that ran the government from 1948 to 1977. Um, Labor and merits, which was a, which was a uh, a spinoff from labor because labor was insufficiently left-wing for merits. Uh, They did not go into coalition together. Right. And they they could have had. That's because that's because, well, for two reasons. One is that the head of the labor party, a radical leftist named Merav Michaeli, refused to join in a coalition with Meretz for some strange reason, because she was just as radical leftist as the Meretz party. She said no. And Yair Lapid, the prime minister, the caretaker prime minister, didn't push them to do it the way right. you said. Netanyahu the way Bibi did, pushed. right. That's right. He right. didn't He didn't intervene. And um, it's he might not have succeeded, by the way, just right. because he didn't intervene, but he might not have succeeded even ha- even if he had done so. Now, there's right. another... But element- had they gone into yeah. alliance together, yeah. <laughs> that coalition of the left could have had eight or nine seats. Right. right? But they I think- still... But here, yeah. here is another thing. Even if they had, every, every calculation, mathematically... Yeah. Right. would have meant that the left could not have gotten more than 60 seats or even 60. We couldn't right. have gotten more than 59 right. seats okay. without the, the, Arab, here, no, right. without the yeah. Arab parties. Right. Okay. But here's the thing. So Bibi Netanyahu does politics well, and he is, he benefits from doing politics well. And the Israeli left, which is, uh, you know, signals its virtue all the time, is wildly incompetent. Just to give you an example of how far this debate has moved or shifted, you're talking about Mirav Micheli, the head of labor from 20, the leader of the opposition from 2013 to 2017 is the current president, Bougie Herzog. He was head of the Labor Party. He ran against Bibi in the election in which Bibi won a convincing victory. Yeah, the Labor Party has changed heads uh, many times over the last few years because they keep flopping. But it's important. Flops. It's important to note as we get once we do our break here. But as we get to the question of of uh, of the hysterical response of the government, that Bougie Herzog, as president of Israel, has been going around saying, "Stop saying that Israel is turning into a fascist country. What's the matter with all of you people? Cool, cool it, chill out, stop it. <laughs> this is really bad. This is the guy who until." six years ago, was head of the most important left-wing party in the country. And even he is going, what the hell is wrong with you people? Stop talking this way. And it's a very important thing that is not being noted enough, but is noted in Elliot Abrams's uh, brilliant piece. But uh, before we get into that, let me spend a minute talking to you about Bowl and Branch sheets stay cozy all winter long with a set of buttery soft sheets from Bowl and Branch made with 100% organic cotton threads. They get softer with every wash, okay? Highest quality threads on earth made from slow-grown organic cotton for a superior softness and a better night's sleep. Loved by millions of sleepers, so luxurious, loved by three U.S. presidents, over 10,000 rave reviews. They're designed to feel incredible for all sleepers. They come in 10 versatile colors and all sizes, 
from twin up to California King, made without toxins. They fit the deepest of mattresses, and they're labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever. Best of all, Bowen Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all U.S. orders. So make the most of bedtime with Bowen Branch sheets. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code COMMENTARY at BowenBranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code COMMENTARY. Okay, so... The government is assembled. It takes a long time. It takes almost two months to assemble the government, but it is assembled. And um, people go absolutely haywire. I'm going to talk to you in a minute about my rabbi, who has gone totally haywire, has forced me to resign from the synagogue that I have attended for uh, close to 20 years. Um, why have they gone haywire? It's because the, 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 There are two different claims. One of them is personnel. That is Ben Gavir and Smotrich, and whether they are fascists who want to, you know, who want to suck up Judea and Samaria and consign um, the Palestinians to an everlasting apartheid horror, and then there is the policy of reigning in the Israeli judiciary, which is a policy question that has two faces. One of them is: Is there a check and balance system in Israel that is being overthrown by efforts to control the Israeli judiciary? And is this being done in order to prevent the prosecution of politicians, not only Bibi Netanyahu, but the head of the Shas party, Arya Derry, who is, uh, uh, I, I don't even know where he is in this, but he is also involved. So we have policy and we have people. And then we have this stuff, as you say, about how, you know, this government is hostile to homosexuals. While the speaker of the Knesset, a labor, uh, excuse me, a Likud member named uh, Ohana, is himself a married gay man with two children. Uh, okay, so can we separate out these strands and talk about the hysteria? So Smotrich and Ben Gavir. Ben Gavir famously had, until 2020, a photograph of Baruch Goldstein, the... Uh, uh, assassin, the man who went and shot up Hebron, the the he shot the, up a bunch of Arabs uh, at the well, he shot twenty nine people mm -hmm. and then was trampled and, and then was and what I think he killed himself. No, I think he was trampled. He was killed by the mob. He was killed by a mob. No, um, I don't know. Anyway, this was nineteen ninety five, so it was a very incendiary thing to do in his office to have a picture of Baruch Goldstein up on his wall. It would be like, you know, having a picture of a school shooter or something like that right. up on your wall or Ted Kaczynski or something like that. And he took it down in 2020 in an effort to tell Naftali Bennett that he could go into coalition with with his government. But that was a long time. It was like 25 years. He 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 was he was sending smoke signals about supporting this infamous terrorist act so you're saying he said he's changed you can understand why some people would think he hasn't changed right but he did but he and his other he and his colleague got 14 seats in the government that's 10 percent of the you know in a parliamentary system that's a lot of seats and should they not be represented in the government and and also i you have to make it clear that their party is not the is not among the Haredi parties, which are the ultra orthodox parties. These are the religious Zionists um, 
who are extreme patriots, who, um, whose members serve in elite units in the army, who believe that, that Israel has to fight the narrative that it's occupying uh, Palestinians who so-called were kicked out of their lands. And also, they, they also have two different things. A Smotrich is nearly a libertarian. He's not really a libertarian, but is in economic terms. And he is now finance minister. And what he wants to do is return, uh, restore Israel to its uh, free market um, efforts. Let's put it that way, because Israel never became a totally free market economy, even under Netanyahu. Um, partly because of the total resistance of unions and all the usual uh, suspects. So Smotrich is finance minister and what he cares about is liberalizing the economy even more. Ben Gvir, what he cares about is not only um, making sure that terrorists don't have cushy jail terms where they get, um, they get degrees, bachelors, masters, and PhDs in prison and have televisions and there they radicalize even more. But he wants to police, he wants to um, solve crime in Israel, which has gone over the charts. Crime, both Jewish crime, Arab crime, Arab on Arab crime, protection rings, mafia, shootings in the South. The South has become what they call like the wild, wild West, even though it's in the South. Uh, the Bedouin come up to him and say, please help us. That's what he wants to do. The police, in a way, you might compare it a little bit to what happened to police in America in dangerous neighborhoods where they stopped policing because right. they were in danger. And the right. poor residents of these neighborhoods you know, say, great, now the police won't come and help us. And that's who Ben Gvir is. And that's the right. real secret of his success. So, you know, these, okay. it's so not an accident. Is, right. But Ben Gvir also took the stroll on the Temple Mount. We should yeah. talk about that a little bit. So and as he didn't I said, pray. he didn't pray. He didn't pray. Or, because yeah. Jews aren't allowed even to whisper. You're allowed to go on the Temple Mount. You are literally not allowed to pray. This was the deal, as I said, that Moshe Dayan made in the wake of the 1967 uh, war because Moshe Dayan believed that prayer was an act of uh, intellectual and spiritual idiocy and anybody who was religious was an idiot and, you know, you didn't are, have a cool just, eye patch. Just, and so... Let me just stress this a, for yes. your listeners. yes. If a Jew goes up to the Temple Mount only in times when he's allowed to, there are special times, if he's caught whispering, if he's mouthing a certain prayer called the Shema, if he's seen, his lips are seen moving, a policeman will come over and either arrest him or kick him off. You realize this is how absurd it is. Yeah. Even under yeah. his so the, so the most sacred site in Judaism is yeah. the one place, the one place in the entire state of Israel, because Jerusalem is annexed. Jerusalem is eternally part of the state of Israel. The one place in the state of Israel where a Jew is not allowed to pray. There's not a single place, by the way, in the state of Israel in which another religion is not allowed to pray. Muslim can pray anywhere on any could go into the grand synagogue and, you know, say a Muslim prayer could, you know, do anything it wants. 
it is this one thing and it was this one deal by this loathsome popinjay moshe dayan who deserves i mean we should you know go read michael oren's book about about the six day war to get a full flavor of moshe dayan's policy political and military arrogance and idiocy at the same time it's a miracle that even though he was defense minister fortunately he was only defense minister for six days for like seven to before the war started for about a minute so that he didn't wasn't there to muck up the war anyway but this was the deal he made and it's now sat in, in this entropic way yeah so the shma which of course is six words <laughs> it's not six words there are three paragraphs but the the shma itself is six words you're not allowed to say six words, even mumble them. That's, this is, this is the, okay. So, um, uh, and people say like, well, what do you need to say the Shema for? What do you need to pray on the Temple Mount for? Well, you don't need to pray anywhere. You don't need to do anything. Why don't you convert to Christianity? <laughs> you know, yeah. Why should a Jew pray on the Temple? God knows why a Jew should pray in the place where, you know, where the Temple, where, where the Temple last stood. Can't imagine why. No reason. Anyway, so this this is how insane the policy of uh, conditional Zionists has gotten, which is that, you know, you're a Zionist, but if a Jew says, well, you know, A, we, we have restored Israel as our eternal and undivided capital, and therefore, you know, we should be able to go and pray on the Temple Mount, you're like, what, are you crazy? Only crazy people, as my rabbi, whom I'll talk about in a bit, minute once told me only crazy people need to pray on the temple mount anyway so that's ben gavir and smotrich then we have the then we have the the question of israel's judiciary so israel's judiciary uh has basically functioned for the last 20 years in an american-ish supreme court way announcing that laws are unconstitutional except Israel doesn't have a constitution and the Israeli judiciary has literally no, there is no basis in law for the Israeli judiciary or the Supreme court of Israel invalidating laws. There is no, for example, you know, England, which also doesn't have a constitution has an eight century history dating from Magna Carta does not have a judicial check on parliamentary action. It's not a fascist country because there is no constitution and the court doesn't have the power to overrule the legislature. This power, this right was arrogated by itself by the Supreme Court, which not only uh, makes these announcements and these conditions, but also appoints itself. Yeah. So the panel of judges picks new judges with no input whatsoever from the political system. In our system, the president nominates a federal judge and the Senate uh, confirms or or rejects a judge. And there are hearings and there are public hearings. And there are public hearings and all of that. And in other places, judges are elected. So they're brought. However, a judge is chosen in the United States, the political system is involved. No, there is no such thing as a, the judiciary is independent of the executive and the legislative, but it is not a standing existing body that simply acts like the just rules on things 
with no check on itself. So and, and that yeah. But Go ahead. Ruthie, you could comment on this, but and my understanding it's not just the, the theoretical and um structural, but it but the, the courts behave in an intrusive manner as a result, right? Because there is there is totally. no checks. Totally. Yeah. They they are so activist that they're it's the most activist Supreme Court in the world. And they uh determine things that are not in their purview. It was a power grab that has been going on for a two or three decades now. And um, it what actually this government wants to do is return to the pre-justice Aaron Barak. He's the person responsible for this sort of revolution. Um, restore it to its previous time. So to say that it's destroying democracy is ridiculous in the first place. And second of all, you, you have, can you imagine, here's another thing you don't hear much. Israel's attorney general, the attorney general, the job of attorney general is basically he's the government's lawyer. And he or she, in this case, it's a she, by the way, is the government's lawyer. And the role of that government's lawyer is to advise, to advise the government. In this case, the attorney general dictates, uh, rejects the government decisions. It's unbelievable. It's, that is undemocratic. That is unacceptable. Um, and therefore, um, the, all of these things are what this government wants to tackle. And the voter wanted that. That's number one. But in the bigger picture, if you don't go, you know, what you're hearing is a lot. I don't think all the Americans who are screaming about this or the even the Israelis who are even know anything about the judicial system. It's just an anti Netanyahu hysteria um, because the government that just preceded Netanyahu, this is the bigger picture, said we want to we want to be friends with the Democrats in America. That's what this boils down to. You had a government that said, no more being pro-Republican. They claimed, and Bennett, all of the previous prime ministers in the last three, or, three years claimed that Netanyahu is the responsible for the split in America between Democrats and Republicans over the issue of Israel. That is nonsense. Netanyahu is not to blame for that. But the idea was that the reason that the Biden administration and the reason the Obama administration and the reason so many Democrats are very iffy on the subject of Israel is because of people like Netanyahu and uh, Ron Dermer who sidled up to Republicans. And therefore we have to restore our, our you know, the bipartisanship, okay? That is another key issue. And Israelis are conservative and do not. So the left in Israel, of course, is more, uh, let's say, has a greater affinity to the Democratic Party. And it is true that the right in Israel has more of an affinity to the Republican Party. What is so hard to understand about that? And that is, that's just the situation. And Israelis tend to be more of the Republican Party view. Okay, so... Getting to this area, so uh, uh, this is uh, this is the most right wing government in Israel's history. It is said. Not sure that's true. Uh, I think that because yeah, it doesn't have any other parties in it other than on the right. That's why but, right. Okay, but 
<clears throat> I think arguably what people, I mean, the, the, the similarities between the rhetoric that is being used now and the rhetoric that was used in 1977 when, when uh, Menachem Begin came into power for the, being the yep. first non-labor uh, uh, prime minister in uh, almost 30 years in the history of the country. And it was said that he was going to be a fascist. He was, he, his followers sang uh, Begin, King of Israel, a long live Begin, King of Israel. So he was going to install a kingship and this was terrible. And, you know, they're all fascist. And the people who voted for him, the uh, mostly uh, Sephardic Mizrahi Jews had no tradition of, they were all from strongman countries and they didn't believe in democracy and they wanted a king like the kings of old and all of this. It's all very familiar to me, including, by the way, the labor freak out, as I think I've uh, told people on this podcast. Uh, there was a famous uh, Israeli uh, journalist named David Halevi, uh, Dudu Halevi, who was um, uh, at Time Magazine when I was at Time Magazine, uh, was sued by Ariel Sharon for having reported, having said that uh, Ariel Sharon had had encouraged vengeance against the Palestinians in a refugee camp in Lebanon, the Sabran Shatila massacre, which was conducted by uh, Lebanese army forces and not by Israelis, um, and won the suit, partially won the judgment against Halevi that I once went out to dinner with Halevi in in Herzliya in Israel. And he told me he he said to me, I have to I had to do whatever I could to stop this this government. Uh, because, you know, it's made up of, and then he used the N-word. He said, this is a, would you want a government of N-words in America? That's what he said to me. So I'm familiar with this idea and the kind of left-wing, right-wingery that says that anybody who believes things that I otherwise don't believe is not only illegitimate, but let's face it, you know, they're like... Primitive. They're disgusting. Primitive, right. Okay. Uh, so the freak out is real. Um, and I guess. Can, can I ask a quick yeah, question ahead. about the freak out? Because reading Elliot's piece in particular and, and, and listening to this conversation, it strikes me that it's, although we're talking about Israel, the, the performative anti-fascist uh, posturing that has become extremely common here in the U.S., for sure, um, is spreading in the same way that, you know, concerns about populism are spreading around the globe. But we don't talk about the performative anti-fascism enough. It's, first of all, ridiculous. It's rarely based on anything factual. But the term fascism still carries a lot of power when when politicians in particular claim that they see the threat of fascism. So it's politically useful for riling up your base. But it, it is striking to me that for all the concerns about populism and all the big think pieces about the dangers of this or that, it's accepted at face value that that fascism is real when someone who's a little to the, you know, anyone to the right of Mao is elected by the people who themselves <laughs> share those values. So I wonder if, Ruthie, if you, do you see a difference between the kind of the, the fascist rhetoric that's been going on in Israel lately versus what we've seen here in the U.S. basically since 2016? No, I think it's very similar. And by the way, Jonathan Tobin uh, pointed that out. I think it was yesterday or the day before in a JNS column that it's very reminiscent of the, uh, of the language used in America also um, since 2016. And 
The shocking part about it, as far as I'm concerned, is that at these demonstrations in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, that there's this uh, accusation of Nazism. I mean, in Israel, you know, that is just that is just beyond the pale. That the idea that oh, so what if this government was democratically elected? So was Hitler's government? Um, is I cannot tolerate that kind of language. And I know, you know, there's similar things going on here, but you know, to use it in Israel, Israel, a tiny country surrounded by enemies, by the way, fewer enemies than before, thanks to Netanyahu, which is another issue we didn't touch on here. He's the greatest uh, broker of peace that there's been in the history of Israel, okay? Um, is that, the, the, uh, that you would use the language of Iranian mullahs and anti-Semites, heavy duty anti-Semites everywhere to describe your own government just because you don't like Netanyahu is just immoral. And by the way, one of the reasons that they're doing that there's a, there's a, is that Netanyahu's trial that's underway is falling apart. The prosecution case is falling apart. So that the move to say, it's first to criminalize Netanyahu, to criminalize him out of office, and second, to delegitimize his entire uh, premiership before it even starts again, by saying he's corrupt and he's a criminal, when the, pros the prosecution's cases are falling apart. But you wouldn't know that because A, they're not, nobody's mentioning it except the people who are following the trial and sitting in it. Uh, by the way, Netanyahu wanted the trial to be televised and the powers that be, I don't know, television, the attorney general, whoever, all those powers said no. And we know now why they said no, because anybody watching that trial is horrified at what, uh, at the, um, at how illegitimate the prosecution is and the police investigators, okay? So in order to sort of obfuscate that, so then, okay, good. So we have another bogeyman, it's Ben Gvir. Okay, we have another, it's, it's the judicial reform. It's anything to kind of, anything and everything in a big pot, okay? If that doesn't work, this will work. If that doesn't work, now keep in mind that this government was elected while all the media, and the courts and these, uh, the Supreme Court, the attorney general, everybody, politicians were attacking the right and attacking Netanyahu and attacking religion and all that, and yet got elected. So my feeling is the more they keep this, behave, this abominable behavior up, the next time around, we're gonna get even more seats. <laughs> that's my, that's okay. my feeling. So, okay. okay. So let's, the freak out, you, you mentioned the, the case, and I think uh, we have published on this and talked about this over the years of the case has been, there are three separate charges against him. Uh, they are preposterous. Um, it has been, over the course of the last 15 years, the use of um, lawfare to um, efforts to criminalize policy differences, which would be known to Americans, but in, in Israel is really been kind of startling in other words like when you can't figure out how to eliminate a politician you don't like you try to you 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 try to build a case against him and make him get indicted so that you can screw around with them there are there is real corruption and criminality in 
Israeli politics as there is in, in every politics, yeah. but th these cases are exceptionally weak yeah. at best. Um, and the bizarre thing about this trial is it's supposed to go on <laughs> 18 months. So more, more, three years that. at least. Okay. Yeah. Uh, three charges against sitting prime minister. And the idea is that, you know, because the courts only meet three times a week because, you know, they're far too busy watching, you know, the new season of Fauda to. And because there are hundreds of witnesses. Yeah. By the way, yeah, every yeah, yeah, prosecution yeah, yeah. Witness, you don't have eighteen months. Yeah, in the <laughs> yeah. United States, in a in a in a normal system in which you, you this that. is ridiculous. Anyway, yeah. okay. So, I want to pull back and talk about the freakout in the United States. And as right. I've been promising, I want to talk about my rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski of Congregation Anshe Chesed on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Uh, he's a he has been a friend of mine. He is a love. He is a very nice guy. He run. He is a very good pulpit rabbi in the sense that he cares about his congregation. He takes care of people. He has built it. It was in very. It was in a very somnolent position. He's built it into a pretty vibrant place. He is very left wing. He has always been very left wing. He and I have had many disagreements over the years. Um, and uh, but he has always said that he was a Zionist. He has always said that this is something that Israel is the great miracle of the Jewish people, and it's very important. And even though he doesn't like the government, he doesn't like Netanyahu, he doesn't like the stance toward the Palestinians, he is a Zionist. And he announced in the wake of the formation of this government that uh, he would no longer be saying the prayer for the state of Israel during um, services. Prayer for the state of Israel, which is in Hebrew called Avinu Shabbat Shemaim. I want to read everybody the prayer for the state of Israel, which will now, I think, will provide you with the explanation of why I've had to uh, resign my membership from my synagogue. This is the translation of the prayer for the state of Israel. Our Father in heaven, rock and redeemer of Israel, bless the state of Israel, the first manifestation of the approach of our redemption. Shield it with your loving kindness, envelop it in your peace, and bestow your light and truth upon its leaders, ministers, and advisors, and grace them with your good counsel. Strengthen the hands of those who defend our holy land, grant them deliverance, and adorn them in a mantle of victory. Ordain peace in the land, and grant its inhabitants eternal happiness." Lead them swiftly and uprightly to your city Zion and to Jerusalem, the abode of your name, as it is written in the Torah of your servant Moses. Even if the even if your outcasts are at the ends of the world, from there the Lord your God will gather you in. From there he will fetch you. And the Lord your God will bring you to the land that your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. Draw our hearts together to venerate and revere your name and to observe all the precepts of your Torah, and send us quickly the Messiah, son of David, agent of your vindication, to redeem those who await your deliverance. Manifest yourself in the splendor of your boldness before the eyes of all inhabitants of your world, and may everyone endowed with a soul affirm that the Lord God of Israel is king and his dominion is absolute. Amen. You're not going to say that in a synagogue? Um Every word of that could be used or deployed by somebody who hates this government to say, Lord, our God, deliver us from these ministers. We want these ministers to follow your policies of peace. Enlighten them. If you don't like those policies, maybe God can go into their hearts and make them change those policies and pursue the ones that God thinks are better. There is nothing political about this. There is nothing 
incendiary about it. He said he did not want to say this because he does not wish this government well. He thinks it is dastardly, and he is not going to pray for its success. That is astonishing logic and rhetoric because, of course, you the definition of what constitutes a success of this government is a very broad one. Ben Gavir and Smotrich may, may think that success means X. You as a liberal or leftist Jew may think success means Y. You might think that success means the creation of a Palestinian state alongside Israel. You were, you're wrong, but you can believe that. And the policies are not what matters here. The existence of the state is what matters. And what we have happening here in the case of my rabbi and the case of so many people in America, as has been going on for the last, really the last 20 to 30 years, is this notion that Zionism is conditional. It is conditional to be a supporter of the state of Israel based on the policies pursued by the state of Israel. That is an infamy because Israel exists not to be an ordinary country. It is a refuge state for people whose existence in other lands in which they were minorities has led in, in obviously in Europe and then also in the Middle East and in North Africa and in Asia to um, extirpation efforts, to holocausts and to uh, expulsions and has done so for, you know, many thousands of years. And this is a place for Jews to go where they can go nowhere else. And Americans are blessed to live here because they don't have to make a choice like that. And as we've seen, there are hundreds of thousands of Jews in France who have been forced to make that choice, they believe, and have made Aliyah the last 10 years to Israel because they believe that France is no longer safe for them to live in. Um and so Zion, conditional Zionism is to say, what matters to me is whether or not the government that is in place there does what I want. And um, that is like saying that a, a country that exists to be the homeland of somebody is only defensible if its policies cons, can comport with your own, uh, you know, uh, temp you know, sort of temporary ideas about what's best for it or what's not best for it. And particularly in light of the fact that this was a decisive electoral result in a, in a fractious democracy. And we don't even know how much of the agenda that is being laid out not only will be implemented, but whether it can be undone if things go wrong there'll be another election the government will fall maybe the left will be returned to power and they can enshrine the judiciary again i mean it doesn't that's what it means to be a democracy laws are passed that can be revoked rules are put in place that can be can, can, can be overturned and this notion that you know bb is going to come into power with 64 seats not 90 seats not 110 out of 120 seats but impose all these laws that nobody wants, and then the country will be changed forever, is itself an infamy against the name of, of democracy or the whole point of democracy. So let us all just be ruled by whatever, you know. Anyway, this is this is the madness that has overtaken people so that you can't say, I want success for the state of Israel so that the Jewish people can flourish and their numbers can improve and that their lives will be better than the lives of their fathers before it. <clears throat> So 
left-wing Jews in America are no longer comfortable saying that, and uh, that is a scandal and a tragedy and a horror. But in fairness, though I don't want to give them any fairness, in fairness to American Jewry, uh, especially on the left, um, when you have the outgoing Israeli government saying similar things or saying that this is the end to Israeli democracy or the end to the state of Israel, um, you know, you want American Jews to be more Catholic than the Pope, so to speak. Well, yes, in some you ways know? you can. In some ways you do because you understand the political interest. So Yair Lapid has a political interest. He's the guy who's standing there saying these people are just are going to just are destroying our country. And I'm standing. I am the Shomer. I'm guarding the I'm guarding Israel's future. I'll be here to oppose them resolutely and be here to pick up the pieces when they they collapse. That is what hard and tumble politics is. Um, but, but Lapid goes beyond that. What he says is that the fact that this government has a majority is a reflection on how bad the pop the public is and how ignorant and how it needs to be guided by the enlightened people. Yeah, well good luck to I mean that's a yeah. really brilliant message for a exactly. for a leader for a leader in a, in an electoral democracy. And yes, people are saying that. A longtime commentary contributor, Hill Halkin, published a disgraceful piece yes. in the Jewish Review of Books in which he said, the problem here isn't even Israel, it's Judaism. Judaism is the problem because it promotes an idea of, I don't know what, I, I'm not even sure, you know, I, I don't even really care. I think you should go translate a novel and stop writing his fool if narishkeit about politics, which I stopped publishing in commentary because he was getting nauseating. 10, 12 years ago, and this piece proves that I was right about that. This is a, a really shocking dereliction of intellectual duty that he should not only get to a point at which he would say that the problem is political, it's that the problem is Jewishness itself or the faith itself, you know, good. So that's what he needed to move to Israel for, is to sit there for 50 years hating Israel from his from his Ari and Zichron Yaakov. That's really Mazel Tov to him. Uh, it's really, you know, I, I, it, it's so appalling to me that he was somebody who was a, you know, you know a trusted contributor to this, to this, to this magazine, and should and should uh, engage in such, um, frankly, anti-Semitic rhetoric. If, if, if a non-Jew had said the problem with Israel is Judaism, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyhow, um. So I'm sorry to have dominated this conversation with Ruthie because I can talk to her anytime, uh, but here we are. This this is just what the hour was like. Uh, Ruthie, thank you so much. You can read Ruthie on Fridays in the Jerusalem Post. Is that right? Yeah. Fridays yeah. in the Jerusalem Post. And what days in the... And in the, uh, Sundays and Tuesdays in, in Jewish News Syndicate. <laughs> okay, there you go. So that's that's uh, Ruthie Bloom, longtime journalist, editor of Jerusalem Post, editor of the Algo Miner, editor everywhere, <laughs> JNS, Jerusalem Post columnist. Um, and for uh, thank you again. And for Abe, Noah, and Christina, I'm John Pothortz. Keep the candle burning.